Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. Sunny skies. Welcome to this Wednesday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, Atlanta City Council member Amir Faroki talks about a new task force aimed at addressing income inequality in the old Fourth Ward neighborhood. And so we said, look, you know, this is a neighborhood in many ways unique in the city with increasing wealth and affluence alongside entrenched poverty. So we said, let's start to explore what a guaranteed income pilot could look like, not using public dollars, trying to find pilot dollars to support a program here. And so we're in the middle of a six-month task force deep dive on what a pilot could look like, what types of populations it could serve, what outcomes we want to see or want to measure. That conversation coming up in just a moment. But first this, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp gave a press conference earlier today on the state's continuing response to the coronavirus pandemic. WABE health reporter Sam Whitehead was there and had this exchange with the governor. Governor, thanks for taking questions. So you point out the state has made a lot of progress since our peak we saw in July. But looking at statistics from our own Department of Public Health, that progress has really slowed down as of late. A report they put out yesterday says the seven-day average of new cases actually increased as of yesterday afternoon. Percent positivity has also increased slightly. So it's great to point out this progress. Did you say increased slightly? Uh, It's from DPH, from 6.3% to 7% as of the 5th. So what do you make of this plateau we're seeing right now? Well, as as the members of the media always remind us, we have to look at this on two-week cycles. So, you know, cherry-picking the worst figures that you can, like you've you've done in the past, I think is a little disingenuous to the public. I would encourage them to read Dr. Toomey's reports that she's putting out. I would encourage them to go to the website uh, and get the numbers like I do every day on a multitude of things, percent positive, number of cases, number of tests that were given, where our hospitalizations are, what our R rate is. We were, you know, first in R rate uh, a few days ago. I think we're still to, still in the top five. Uh, so I would look at all the data. And you have to remember, we still are reopening our economy. We still have more kids going back to school. So for us to have a small bump in cases at a defined period of time, If you look at our two-week average, I think we're still in great shape. But that's what we're doing every day is is we're focused on on that and many other things. But it's it's interesting that some people will focus on only the negative and none of the positive, whether it's COVID news or economic news. And I can promise you I'm going to continue to tell the full story. And if we start getting concerned about hospitalization numbers or rising cases, we'll figure out you know why that is if it's a specific area if it's a specific outbreak you know like we saw at one of our military bases but to just paint that in a broad picture for our whole state i think is not very telling to the members of the public so governor this is a report from your department of public health i've had members of your staff ask me specifically 
to pay attention to these reports from the Department of Public Health. Okay. So should we not pay attention to their numbers? I didn't, I didn't say you didn't need to pay attention. I just said that people should look at all the numbers. I can promise you that we're paying attention. We're putting the data out there. So we're fully aware of what's going on. Dr. Toomey addressed that uh, early, and if it becomes a concern, we'll start telling people that. That's why we in the news media report on the daily numbers, so you, the listener, has all the information to make informed decisions regarding your own health and safety. And we certainly appreciate the work of our colleagues in the WAB newsroom and, of course, health reporter Sam Whitehead. Now, speaking of those latest coronavirus numbers from the Georgia Department of Public Health, the latest data reveals the number of newly confirmed cases is slightly up from a week ago. To be exact, 324,650 COVID-19 cases in total have now been confirmed in Georgia. And as mentioned, active COVID-19 hospitalizations, which have been declining steadily, are also leveling out. In total, 29,164 have been hospitalized, and of those, 5,370 were ICU admissions. Now, some experts warn the U.S. death toll could more than double by the end of the year. Here in Georgia, in total, 7,229 deaths have been recorded since March. And as always, this is information from the State Department of Public Health. Now, the pandemic is making it more expensive for counties to hold this year's elections, But DeKalb County will receive a $4.8 million grant to help with polling location costs. So the grant comes from the Center for Tech and Civic Life. It's an organization which has received funding from Facebook and Google, among others. DeKalb officials say the money will be used to hire more elections personnel and purchase additional equipment to process ballots. The county says the funds will also go toward personal protective equipment for poll workers. Now, earlier this year, Fulton County received $6 million from the same Center for Tech and Civic Life organization. This is Closer Look. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Universal basic income is a topic that's received quite a bit of attention during the presidential primaries, particularly from former candidate Andrew Yang. Now, he campaigned on the promise to provide $1,000 to every American every month. So the, the money ends up supercharging not just existing businesses, but also spurs creativity, entrepreneurship, and risk-taking because if you feel like your survival is assured, then you have a much higher chance of striking out and trying to do something on your own. It also supercharges nonprofits, volunteering, the arts, culture, many NPR probably, hmm. like many, many of the things that we value, but the market does not properly value. And I'm going to say that women and people of color actually fall into the same category that the market will systematically undervalue. Mm-hmm. And the freedom dividend or universal basic income actually transforms the way of life for many Americans in a way that would make us more able to solve the real problems. And that was Andrew Yang in a conversation with Morning Edition host Noel King. Yang, of course, dropped out of the presidential race, but the idea of some sort of guaranteed income program has actually been around for a while. And now some who say the concept could be used to lessen inequities, especially those amplified by this pandemic, well, they say it could work. Here in Atlanta, there's now a new task force dedicated to studying the feasibility of a pilot guaranteed basic income program or a state-earned income tax credit in the old Fourth Ward neighborhood. And full disclosure, I will tell you that that is a region that I live in. 
It's called the Economic Security Task Force, and it's led by District 2 Councilmember Amir Faroki. He joins me now on the program. Councilmember Faroki, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. It's great to be with you. Thank you for having me. You know, in that clip that we heard from Andrew Yang, he talked about ensuring survival. And I think that is really a good way to assess what all of us are probably trying to figure out post this pandemic, ensuring survival. What concerns you, not just about the old Fourth Ward area, but just in general, uh, how folks will sustain and, and get through this, this pandemic? Yeah, it's, it's a question I think we're all grappling with across the country. Um, and I would argue that while the pandemic has laid bare a lot of the insecurities and anxieties that people feel, um, you know, this has been going on for decades. You know, you can, you look over the course of the last kind of 40, 50 years, it's frankly just harder and harder to make it in America, no matter how hard you work. And that last part's really important, no matter how hard you work, because for decades, wages have either stagnated or decreased when you look at inflation, while the cost of housing, healthcare, childcare, education has increased significantly. So it's just harder and harder to make ends meet. And there's a, a, a statistic that gets commonly thrown around, which I think is quite powerful, which is 40% of American adults cannot afford to cover a $400 expense. Mm -hmm. And so you have millions and millions and millions of Americans who are living paycheck to paycheck. Uh, and the pandemic really lifted that up. And you saw a government response for part of the summer um, that, it, that provided $600 extra in unemployment benefits. You saw CARES Act funding going to, going to save businesses. Um, and that kind of baseline of support is something I think we should be looking at across the country, but we're going to look at it uh, hard in, in one part of our city, and I'm happy to talk more about that. Well, you mentioned that Paycheck to Paycheck, which is actually a series here on Closer Look, but also here's something else I want to throw out at you, because studies also suggest that most Americans living that Paycheck to Paycheck is right around between 74 and 79 percent. What does that tell you? Yeah, I, I think it, it tells you that you know before we can talk about economic mobility, which we struggle with in Atlanta and we talk about a lot, um, we really need to focus on basic economic security, meaning what, is it, what does it mean to live a decent, dignified life uh, in, in our community? Um, and I think what you just articulated, Rose, suggests that the current support system, whether it's a combination of housing, healthcare, transportation, workforce development, whatever it may be, isn't effective. It's not working if this many people, you know, almost 80% of the country is feeling great economic anxiety and insecurity. Mm -hmm. And you could argue, quite frankly, that the, the system isn't broken, it's working as intended. And so I think the guaranteed income conversation is one. It's been around, as you mentioned, for, for decades. So the idea has been around for decades. Dr. King called for it late in his life, and he was a born and preached in the Old Fourth Ward. But the system itself is not providing the dignity and decency for folks, again, no matter how hard you work. And so this is, I think, one intervention that it's worth exploring. Before we explore it even further, let's define some of these concepts for our listeners, because when we talk about guaranteed basic income, council member, and a state-earned income tax credit, two different concepts here, correct? Yep. So let's start with the guaranteed basic income. Define that for our listeners. Yeah, so it is It is what it sounds like. It's a, it's a cash transfer, um, typically from government to individuals to provide a, a basic floor of, of support, right? So you can spend it how you see fit. Uh, studies have shown that tends to be spent on, on housing and basic needs. Uh, but it, it's, it's a way to create, um, I think, a, a basic floor of, of decency for folks who, who may be in need. I, and there's, there's debate across the country as to whether it should be universal, as Andrew Yang has argued for, 
um, versus if we're going to start with this, let's maybe start with the folks who are most vulnerable, um, which are oftentimes black and brown residents, working class folks. And the state, which I think most people know, but just for those that don't, the state earned income tax credit. Yeah, it is um, pretty simple. It's a, a benefit for working folks who are low to moderate income. So it's a, it's a kind of big tax break, but you have to file a tax return in order to get it. Uh, it's, it's kind of an intermediary way um, to provide financial support to, to mm-hmm. low and moderate income folks. Now, Councilmember Faroki, you and I both know that so many pockets of Atlanta have changed over these last few years. The old Fourth Ward neighborhood is one of them. And I know that's part of your district. Uh, when you talk about this studying the income inequality, let's be really clear now, um, the old Fourth Ward has changed. The disparity between the groups that we're going to talk about here, what, what concerned you to even start doing this? Yeah, so full disclosure, I, I live in the Old Fourth Ward as well. I represent six neighborhoods, one of which is the Old Fourth Ward. And, you know, when you and I walk out of our, our homes and we walk through the neighborhood, uh, you see very quickly uh, million-dollar homes sitting on the same block as subsidized public housing. And we should note, I don't live in one of those homes. I just want everybody to know. <laughs> <laughs> I was not, not implying that. Uh, I know you're making the big big bucks at public radio. Be clear. Uh, so. that, that, that ain't me. All right. Go ahead, sir. <laughs> uh, we have in the Old Fourth Ward um, the largest community of Section 8 residents in the American South, over 1,000 um, folks who are making less than $13,000 a year. But what's been interesting is over the last 20 years, this neighborhood has become uh, arguably the most economically and racially diverse neighborhood in the city. It is gone from about 12,000 residents to 15,000 residents over the last 20 years. And over that time, it's gone from being 70%, excuse me, 76% black, 16% white to 46% white, 43% black. And at that same time, the income level, the average income level in the neighborhood has risen from 19,500 to 53,500. Almost all of that income increase has come from an influx of young professionals and middle-income folks who are mixed race, but um, it has not accrued to the folks who have been here for, for decades. Uh, and we did a survey of 400 residents in the neighborhood uh, and found pretty quickly that the economic anxiety um, was felt, as you might expect, much more amongst black residents than, than white residents. And so you have in here a, a neighborhood that um, very much reflects the rest of the city of Atlanta. 33% of black residents live below the poverty line, 7% of white residents live below the poverty line, and that's about what it looks like across the city. And so we said, look, you know, this is a neighborhood in many ways um, unique in the city, uh, increasing wealth and affluence alongside entrenched poverty. That dichotomy is uncomfortable, but it's also in many ways beneficial because you have um, the benefits of a truly diverse neighborhood, and that's where you tend to see economic mobility. But that economic insecurity exists for for so many in the neighborhood. So we said, let's let's start to explore what a guaranteed income pilot could look like, not using public dollars, trying to find pilot dollars to support a a program here. Well, Council Member Faroki, let's look at what the driver has been behind this too these last few years, which has been, we can start with the addition of the Beltline, economic development. So can you understand someone listening to what you just said saying, okay, you can't control that type of development, which is the leading factor. Those million dollar homes were constructed for a reason, right? Because the areas changed. You got the Beltline. So even with having this feasibility study, which is great, what the probable outcome is that well, folks have moved out already or been displaced that they can't even take advantage of whatever comes out of this. Can you understand that criticism? 
Sure. I mean, look, I mean, cities are either are growing or dying and cities are, are evolving kind of living animals, as it were, and there's constant shifting and shaping in this neighborhood. Uh, I think combination of the Beltline success, as well as being close to Midtown and downtown and jobs and transit uh, has made it a very desirable place to live. And I think the question for any city that is experiencing this growth and this change, which is a lot of American cities, is in that evolution and in that, that um, shifting, are you doing everything you can to make sure residents have a place to live, whether they've lived in the neighborhood or not uh, long-term? And can they live a decent life? I think that's the question we're asking is, you know, to live a decent, secure life in this neighborhood, you know, what's working, what isn't, and what, what, what may an intervention be? I, I, I do wanna note that, you know, I mentioned that we have the largest community of Section 8 residents in the American Southeast. None of those residents have been, all the same number of units exist today that existed 20 years ago. So much of the growth, while there has been probably displacement of longtime homeowners who can't afford increasing property taxes, most of the growth has come from an influx of new residents and developments that are priced at market and you know quite, quite expensive. Um, so it, I think that's why you have this kind of side-by-side -side, um, discrepancy, as it were, uh, because the neighborhood has some unique attributes to it that, that allows for that to continue today. Um, it is still incredibly economically diverse. I mean, you have folks making $300,000 a year and folks making $5,000 a year. Uh, and um, while that shift creates really hard conversations, um, it also creates a tremendous opportunity uh, to, to kind of figure out what does it mean to have a vibrant neighborhood in which everyone can live. Well, but here's the other issue too, uh, Councilmember Faroki, is that those units that you say still exist, those are rentals. They're not homeowners, correct? Or, That's correct. Or, or is it a combination? It's mostly renters. And I'm thinking about the stretch on Boulevard, mostly. And you tell me if there's yep. another region. On one side, I believe that is subsidized housing. And then across the street, you've got the 700,000 plus whatever they are, condos, townhomes, whatever they are. Yes, that's a great example of the area being diverse economically. But for those folks who are in the subsidized housing, wouldn't it be better to maybe try to improve their housing? What are we doing to ensure, one, they can stay? Because those units are not in the best shape, let's be really clear. I've been inside of them. I've talked to residents. I've heard their concerns. So what are we doing to at least start with improving where they live already? It's, it's a great question. So all the units that are Section 8 in the neighborhood, almost all of them are owned by a private company called Wingate out mm -hmm. of Boston. Um, you may have seen a lot of new development going up on Boulevard. A lot of that new development is uh, new subsidized housing that they are building and moving folks out of the old housing into the new housing. Uh, no net loss in units in the neighborhood. So everyone who currently lives in an older unit um, will have a, a place in a new unit to the extent that um, they're shifting folks from one to the other. Uh, is that that I development think... to the, I guess, to the west? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Now, uh, well, there's one that just finished being built mm -hmm. uh, right to the on the west side of Boulevard, mm -hmm. um, probably in the last year. Um, they're about to build another expansion to that, about to break ground shortly. A couple blocks up, there is a new development that's kind of a big concrete thing going up. That is, um, I think that's market rate mm -hmm. um, condos. So, but go, to go back to your um, to your to your point, I mean, we have I've been in both the old units and the new units. The new units are, are lovely; they look in many ways like market rate units. Mm -hmm. um, and we have we have residents from uh, the low income housing that are on the task force, and you know, we their their experience and their stories are shaping the task force work as well. 
Uh, and they will say, yeah, it, it's nice to have the new housing. It's much, it's, it's lovely. I, I wouldn't, wouldn't trade it. I wouldn't go back to the old housing. But the fact remains that even with this housing assistance, I live an economically insecure life and it mm -hmm. creates enormous mental, emotional, physical strain on me in ways that manifest themselves in all types of negative externalities in the community. And so um, I think one of the things we're exploring is even with housing assistance, even with healthcare assistance or job assistance, there is still uh, rampant economic security. And if you were to give folks $250, $500 a month, um, $1,000 a month, whatever the number is, you know, can you create um, a sense of security and well-being that allows them to flourish in other ways, in which we've seen happen in studies around the country. Um, you're freer to take care of your parent or your child. You can put food on the table. You may actually not have to work two jobs. You work one job, and you then start to get training to apply for a job you always wanted to pursue. So all these kind of societal benefits accrue when folks live um, at kind of a decent, less stressful life. And that you, know, you get some blowback from folks who say, why would you give money to people for free? Everyone should work for what they, I mean, let me ask you this. If you got $500 a month for free, would you stop working? No, you wouldn't stop working. And this goes back to my original point that no matter how hard you work, and there's a lot of hardworking people who are making not a lot of money and they work harder and harder every year, um, they, that, they, can't, they can't make it. They can't make ends meet. And so I think that's, that's what we're trying to address. That's why this conversation is a national one. Uh, and I think in a city, at a city level, it's the perfect place to try and try out a new theory and experiment. And we'll measure it and if we can raise the money to do it, and we'll see uh, what the outcomes are. Let's talk about then what this task force is tasked with. What are you hoping that they do here? Yeah, so we're, we're looking at, at three things. One, we're looking at what a guaranteed income pilot could look like in, in the neighborhood. Is it even something that's worth trying? So we're asking hard questions around that. We're looking at uh, whether there should be a state earned income tax credit for low-income folks. There is a federal one. We do not have a state one in Georgia. Some states do. We mm -hmm. do not. Uh, and the third thing we're looking at is what does the future of work look like for low- and middle-income workers? Um, you know, what, what will that mean for folks in the hospitality space or the healthcare space? What does automation mean for access to jobs uh, and what it means for their current jobs? So looking at those three issues and how they play into economic security is the focus of the task force. We will be issuing a report uh, in early January that makes some suggestions and recommendations on, on steps forward for those residents in the neighborhood. If you're looking at a monetary disbursement of funds, can you understand someone countering with, would it be better or be, would it better serve those who qualify, who are eligible for this program, if it were to you know, come online, in terms of providing childcare vouchers or transportation, act to job training, funding for certifications in, in a specific industry. I'm thinking of maybe construction or manufacturing or welding or something like that. Would it be better served to have specific resources that folks could say, this is what I want to help improve their quality of life as opposed to $500 to $1,000 extra a month? Or in addition to this concept? Yeah, you, you, you framed it really well when you asked... Um a second ago, you know, why don't you give people what they want? And I think that that's what cash is, right? I mean, giving someone $500 a month is a lot more effective than saying, here's a hundred dollar, you know, food voucher, here's a Marta card, here's, uh, you know, a, a payment for a, a work, workforce development class. You know, ultimately, um, all of us know best, no matter how much money we make in this country, all of us know best 
um, what our needs are and how to deploy resources when we have them. And giving people the autonomy to decide um, how to spend that money is much more effective than having someone register for a specific housing program or a job training program, not knowing where that person is in their life. I mean, if, if I'm getting $500 a month and I'm low income, one month I may say, look, this is gonna help me um, get groceries for the month and pay for my child's uh, Wi-Fi so they can mm-hmm. perform in school. The next month, then maybe I need, a, I need a get a car repair. And you know, giving people the freedom to make those choices has proven to be very effective. You look at studies around the country that have run pilots like this, the outcomes are people spend money on the basic necessities that you and I spend money on mm-hmm. and uh, giving them the, the free um, kind of free reign to decide how to spend those dollars is much more impactful than saying you also have to do these three other things. Now, in the development of a pilot program, we want to we want to create a value add to all the other studies that have been going around the country. Um, and they've looked at different things in different populations. And so we may very well come up with a proposal that says, in addition to someone getting five hundred dollars, a thousand dollars a month, Let's also look at ways to um, create uh, opportunities to build wealth through a savings program or a baby bond. Or if we want to measure health outcomes, are there certain healthcare interventions or access that we can create alongside um, the monthly cash transfer? Uh, and so I, I think we're working through those conversations now to see if there's something we want to measure um, outside of just someone receiving cash that also shows uh, an improved um, financial situation. Where else in the nation is this program working or is in a pilot phase as well? Yeah, there's a, there's a number of pilot programs that are ongoing, the most high profile of which is in Stockton, California, where Mayor Tubbs uh, has been um, through a pretty well-known program providing $500 a month to folks for 18 months, and they're measuring um, just kind of emotional and physical well-being of folks who are receiving those dollars. In Jackson, Mississippi, there's a program called Magnolia Mothers Trust that's uh, giving $1,000 a month to single black mothers uh, in the community. Um, you're starting to see programs uh, form in Newark, New Jersey, potentially Chicago as well. Uh, Councilmember Faroki, what is the timeline for you that you would like to see results or, or some type of review or assessment for this program? Yeah, so the, the task force will work through the end of the year. We're in the process of um, putting together a report and recommendations that will be released in January. Uh, I think one of the things we'll recommend is uh, a pilot program in the neighborhood. Uh, the, the burden then falls on us to go and find funders, li- likely through private philanthropy or wealthy individuals who want to support a program that we could then run for a year, two years, three years, depending on how we design the program. So uh, first step is to issue a report. And the second step is to actually launch a pilot program. It would have to be run by a nonprofit that would be set up to run it. This will not be a government, um, you know, mm-hmm. I can't do this from City Hall. Sure. Uh, so we'll, we'll set it up to run independently. But we really want to spark a, a conversation to show that you can take big steps and have kind of really remarkable outcomes if we take some risks and, and try big things and no better place to try it than at the local level. As we wrap up, what concerns do you have about the old Fourth Ward neighborhood and in other neighborhoods throughout Atlanta? Because this is, goodness, this is a conversation we've had so many times on this program about Atlanta's income inequality, the gap there, uh, the gap in terms of, of education, a uh, lot of gaps. A lot of gaps in this Atlanta region. What concerns do you have, um, especially as we move out of COVID-19, whenever that happens or however that's happening in general? Because this is just going to exasperate some of the burdens for a lot of folks that they already had to begin with pre-pandemic. Yeah, my, my concerns, I think, echo what you just intimated. So, you know, we are a 
and rightfully so, an ambitious city. You know, I think we have um, the permission and the DNA to be amongst the great American cities. Um, in fact, I think if you were to say, is there a city in this country that will be the next great American city in, in this century, it, it should be us and it can be us. Now, what concerns me is that in order to do that and to be that, um, no matter how great our economic development is, no matter how many big companies we attract here, if our city is not inclusive and um, protective of folks so that you have all types of folks who can access the fruits of this city, then we're gonna fall short. Um, you do not wanna have a city that uh, is as in, um, unequal as we are today because it holds back. It holds us back with respect to economic power, tax revenue, health outcomes, um, all these things matter. Uh, and that starts with taking care of people. Um, just as it's as, as important to pave the street and keep the sidewalks smooth, it's important to make sure folks aren't hungry, that they have a roof over their head, that they can access education and jobs. And we're seeing across a number of neighborhoods in the city, uh, a lot of folks feel like they're being left behind. And that's that goes to housing policy, to zoning policy, to tax policy, to transportation policy. Um, there's no silver bullet. But if you do not pay attention to these um, these really difficult, tricky issues, uh, we're gonna sell ourselves short and we'll see other places become more attractive uh, and perhaps live up to the, the legacy that we've set for ourselves. Atlanta City Council Member Amir Faroki leading the Economic Security Task Force, which aims to address income inequality and looking at several concepts to help folks in the region, in District 2. Councilmember Faroki, thank you so much for taking the time. As always, I appreciate a good conversation. I'll see you, I guess, on the Beltline, maybe? Yes, but not on a scooter, right, Rose? Not on a scooter, and wear a mask. <laughs> That's right, wear a mask. Be safe, everyone. Thank you for having me. It's always good to be with you. Thank you, Council. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. Isaiah Nixon, A.C. Hall, Ahmaud Arbery, three black men of different generations, three black men killed here in Georgia. And the accounts surrounding their deaths all told through WABE's podcast, Buried Truths. Isaiah Nixon on September 8, 1948, down in Austin, Montgomery County, Georgia. A.C. Hall on October 13, 1962, Macon, Georgia. And Ahmaud Arbery, February 23, 2020. Brunswick in Glen County, Georgia. The voice that takes the listeners through these episodes is someone that we're all familiar with. He's a veteran journalist. That's a good way they frame it, Hank, when you get past a certain age. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm there. <laughs> a veteran journalist, a Pulitzer Prize winning author, and a Peabody Award winning podcast and host of Barry Truths. He's also a professor of practice, creative writing program at Emory University. A whole lot of other stuff, but I got to say this too. He co-authored the Race Beat, 
the press, the civil rights struggle, and the awakening of a nation that won a 2007 Pulitzer Prize for history. This book sits on my desk, and every journalist and aspiring journalist should read it. Hank Klibanoff joins me now. Hank, good to see you virtually. Thank you, Rose. It's so wonderful to be with you. You know, let's be really clear, Hank, before we, we dig into season three of Very True. So when we started our respective careers, there was no podcasts, there was no Zoom learning, but both of these platforms have been pretty key in the work that we do. Have you embraced it? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I have. Um, and it's interesting coming, you know, working in an academic atmosphere. Um, a lot of things that academics do that are so valuable, the research they do has had few places to go in the past. You know, it went into a book and that was how you were adjudged as time went on as to whether you got certain levels of tenure and so forth. And I should add, I'm not on a tenure track. That's mm -hmm. not my, my goal. But, you know, over time, you've seen how other things that, that academics do are increasingly getting credit toward um, that higher standing within, mm -hmm. within the academy. And um, I don't know that podcasting is one there, but I can tell you that the research that goes into a podcast is equal to the research that goes into a book, mm -hmm. and it reaches a far greater audience. You're a storyteller. I'm a storyteller. Have you had to modify or change how you tell the story because you're so great at putting all this on paper, on the words. So now as you are delivering and narrating, you're an orator. Have you had to change at all, modify that along the way? Um, yes, I have in ways that are, <clears throat> that try to address the increased sensitivity that we all have about certain words. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I've learned maybe the hard way, but I've learned the way to be very careful. And that's not to change the story mm -hmm. one bit. Um, but it is, if, if you'll listen to, as you have, I know the Ahmaud Arbery podcast, there's one point in the Ahmaud Arbery story where the FBI agent. Do you mind if I go all into this already? Mm -hmm. Yeah, but, I, mean, I, with the FBI I, I know that conversation. Go you ahead. You know where I'm going. Mm -hmm. That's right. Is is on the stand at a preliminary hearing, and he's asked, um, you know, about what happened when. And at one point, he says that one of the that the man who was accused of actually pulling the trigger to kill that killed Ahmad Arbery, pulling it three times. It's a pump action shotgun. After Arbery's lying on the ground in front of him, he looks down at him and he uses the worst possible word you can use to describe a black person. Mm -hmm. And he puts a gerund in front of it that starts with an F. Mm -hmm. And um, I would never use that in my own words. And if I hadn't had it in his words, we do use it in the podcast. It still carries impact. but. I wouldn't have done it unless I'd had someone else saying it. Mm. It's too it's too hot. It's too hot. Let's talk about this moment, Hank, and how season three of Barry Truths is so different than one and two. And obviously as I and I wanted to read the the time it was important for if folks don't know. Isaiah Nixon, you know, seventy years ago, AC Hall in nineteen sixty two. 
And then Ahmaud Arbery in 2020. Some differences, but then some glaring just similarities. Why tell Ahmaud's story when there's a story that's still developing? Uh, that's a good question. So when I, this past summer, I'm sorry, let me say this past spring, I was on spring break from memory. And the producer, the senior producer of, of Barry Truth, Dave Barraswain and I, were down in Albany, Georgia, Albany, as you know, in Dawson, Georgia, uh, working on what we had anticipated would be season three of the podcast. Uh, and it hasn't been a big secret. It's the story of James Brazier. I've taught James Brazier four times, I think. James Brazier was a black man living in Dawson, Georgia, who worked hard, made good money, and he was able to afford in 1958 a 1958 Chevrolet Impala. Mm -hmm. And I'm telling you, Rose, it was a spiffy looking machine. It's a beauty. Okay. We'd have loved to have ridden in it. Okay. <clears throat> and so uh, we were down there doing all these interviews and looking at records. And as we're leaving after about four days or something like that, uh, I'm listening on the radio and hearing that you know, COVID-19 has broken out in a big way down in Albany and at Phoebe Putney Hospital and, and Dawson, uh, all as a result of a funeral. And I got back to Atlanta and one, I was, didn't have COVID, which is great. But the other thing is that I realized I wasn't going to go back down there for a long time. And I certainly wasn't going to go take students. And I had some students who really wanted to work with me this summer. So this past summer. So I really wasn't sure what we're going to do. And then the Ahmaud Arbery story comes out. Now, keep in mind that the Georgia Civil Rights Cold Cases class that I teach at Emory, from which Barry Truth spun off, is all about cases that fall between the end of World War II to around 1968, 1970, the modern civil rights era. Mm -hmm. And that's almost, that is exclusively what my cases have been. So to do Ahmaud Arbery meant sort of jumping out of those traces. But I decided, look, that, <laughs> I'm probably the only person that, that, <laughs> that cares about that, you know, that <clears throat> holding it to that time frame. And Ahmaud Arbery, the more I heard about it, Rose, the more irresistible it was because it was such an echo of the cases that, as you say, went back 60, 70 years. Mm -hmm. So I just thought, well, let's start doing this. Let's start digging into it. I thought we'd do maybe two episodes, <laughs> but had good, great research from my students and we could do more. And speaking of your students, Hank, because in season one, you all dug through a lot of historical records, documents, even unearthed some audio. I mean, this is more than a half century old. And so now you've got to get them to switch because, you know, finding the documents now is just at the click uh, of, on a keyboard for some of them and, and, and also been doing some interviews. Did you have to mentor them to, to change their approach to research at all? Because this was a modern day 21st century, it's not a cold case, but definitely a, a case. Well, yes and no. Um, because what's interesting, as you know, about the, the podcast, we, we, still maintain it's not about who done it it's about why mm -hmm. and so you know we started looking at Ahmad Arbery and his family and his roots and the 
more we dug, the more we realized this just keeps going back further and further and further into the origins of slavery, the origins of enslavement in, in, along the Georgia coast mm -hmm. to the you know early 1800s. And then we did the same with the with the with the men who who uh, chased him and hunted him down and killed him. So interesting, fascinating, because in in one of the interviews that you all have, who's a St. Simon's based lawyer who spent months mm -hmm. on Sapelo Island studying Jim, Jim Barger, uh -huh. studying uh, Gullah Goochie culture. Take a listen to this. I always felt like St. Simon's and the Golden Owls belonged to the Geechees. And so this idea that a descendant of the Geechees couldn't run wherever he wanted to run infuriated me and still does because black people made the Golden Isles what it is. Anything good here was tilled up and changed and created by black people that were brought here as slaves. You can't understand or fully appreciate the Golden Isles unless you understand the heritage of the black people who have lived here since the 1600s. It's such a misinterpretation of place. What was your reaction when you all discovered that Ahmaud Arbery's roots go back that far? His ancestors, his lineage, his heritage on those grounds, in that mm -hmm. community, in that region. Just, well, it's what made me realize, ah, we can do this uh, in a way that's faithful to the standards that Barry Truth has set. Um, and we can, and, and I learned, and I came to realize this when I read Jim, the guy you just heard, Jim Barger's piece in the Bitter Southerner magazine, okay, the online magazine. And he wrote a piece that was just, I just thought an elegant, beautiful piece about Ahmaud Arbery and about the, this, about Sapelo Island and about the culture down there. He had done his master's work when he was at the Center for the Study of Southern Culture at the University of Mississippi. He had done it on the, you know, uh, along the Georgia coast there. So he knew it. And the more I read about him, I thought, well, I have to call this guy. And I talked to him and I just thought he, in he was as much my Sherpa on coming to understand that as anyone. Our research was our own mm -hmm. um, uh, that, that took uh, the Ahmad Arbery all the way back to this incredibly distinguished slave I had never heard of, Balali Muhammad, a literate Muslim, an enslaved man brought to these shores from the Bahamas, but previously he had been taken from West Africa. And um, Ahmad Arbery's roots go all the way back to this incredible man, Balali Muhammad, whose slave owner, who's uh, Thomas Spalding, had actually sort of entrusted the whole operation of his, of his plantation on Sapelo to Mr. Muhammad. And that was, all this was incredible learning for us. Uh, and like I say, a lot of this was done by my students. How crucial have they been throughout all of this, Hank, the students over at Emory University? And well, increasingly more and more, I'll mm -hmm. say. Um, it, it, over time, more and more. The, the um, you know, early on in season, season one, there is that very dramatic moment when, 
you know, Isaiah Nixon, he's been killed. His family, in 1948, his family has buried him and left Georgia, like, quickly to move to Florida. And when they finally feel it's safe to come back to Georgia and they go to the cemetery where he's buried, they cannot find his gravesite. And they would go back year after year for the cemetery cleaning and never find his gravesite. And, and my students meet his daughter, Dorothy. I bring Dorothy Nixon Williams to my class at Emory and students are mesmerized by her. And three of them say, we got to go down there. I said, well, there's not much to see. You know, you won't find the farmhouse that they lived in. It's burned to the ground many years ago, you know. And they said, we don't care where we're going. <laughs> I said, okay, I'll drive you. And we go down there and we are driven, we're, we're escorted basically to the cemetery 17 miles outside of the county seat, three miles at the end of a dirt road down in, you know, uh, Montgomery County. And there we find the cemetery, never expecting that we'll ever find what the family never could find in 67 years, Isaiah Nixon's gravesite. And sure enough, one of my students found it. And so that's incredible, right? Well, that was sort of the most important thing that a student had done at that point. And there were two others with her that day. So I give them all credit for being part of this. In this case, the students were doing, um, I had five students who were available to work this summer because their jobs and their internships and their, you know, fellowships had been canceled. And I really relied on them more in on this Ahmaud Arbery's story than any story so far, uh, because we were um, picking our topics and making them up just based on gut instinct of what might be a good story uh, and a good aspect to cover. And they came through. You show the listener more about Ahmad than what we've been reading or hearing, because it always begins with the young black man that was jogging. And then there's been some other written occurrences of other interactions with law enforcement, but you you take the listener through a different path. You're talking to relatives and, and folks who knew him. And they saw a side of him that is easy to overlook or to not even guess existed. Um, and they, you know, I, he, he comes to my mind as I'm, we're learning more about him. I keep saying to myself, this is a, and I say, if I say kid, forgive me, but I'm a little older than he was, but I would love to have met him. I, he sounded so funny. He had such a great sense of humor. He could do great imitations. You know, he could mock people and get away with it. Um, I just wish I'd known him, you know, and talking to his football player, mm-hmm cousins and and teammates and things like that he was he was really beloved and the loss of him was like the one person no one wanted to lose hank for our listeners and we don't want to give away too much because we want them to download the podcast but do you talk to folks who knew the the suspects who knew the mcmichaels or who knew mr bryant we talked to some yes we talked to some and there's nothing about them that doesn't fit into that that we found that doesn't fit into Glenn County's troubled racial past. Um, and you know, if you recall in season 
um, to the AC Hall case with the two white policemen shoot and kill AC Hall in the back mm -hmm. when he runs from them. Uh, they th they've been told by a white woman he made he was the guy who stole her gun, and AC Hall sees them and he just starts to run. Um, and I couldn't say in that case that the two white officers were racially motivated from our research were racially motivated to kill him. What I could say with confidence, and this is partly as a white Southern man who grew up, you know, in, in over since the late forties in the South, grew up in the South since the late forties, uh, they were racially conditioned to pull the trigger when they wouldn't have if he had been white. Okay. Now someone listening and, says, hold on, Hank, I can understand someone listening mm -hmm. saying, well, Professor, explain the difference for me in that, in what sure, you just said. Sure. You know, I think that uh, someone who's racially conditioned, um, and that would not, I would not ex exempt myself from that, having been raised in the South, raised in the South in the 40s, late 40s, but mostly in the 50s. Okay, I'm born in 49, in the 50s and in the 60s, hearing all the racist jokes, looking at all the racist publications, okay, reading as I did, as I read from in, in, in season two, reading from uh, reading textbooks in which slavery was probably not the best system in the world, but it, it was a necessary system at the time and that the enslaved, you've heard this, loved their, their, their slave owners, that there was a general, you know, good feeling about it. Oh my, this is in the book. I've got the textbook. I, I yeah. was told and that- And that the Klan was, Klan was also well necessary in the absence of a, of a strong federal government, you know, the Klan was necessary. That's what I'm talking about, racially conditioned. And over time, it's drilled into your head day after day after day. Now, not in my home, not in my home, okay? I, I got the complete opposite lessons in my home, but all around, and I, and I grew up in a pretty progressive part of Alabama, but I knew that that was out there. So that's racially conditioned. I'd say race, racially motivated is, is altogether a, a different, more aggressive, uh, more mean-spirited and hate-driven attitude them being racially conditioned. And when they shot him in the back in that case, and, and I, I, so I, if you've asked me whether I can analyze whether these three men are racist, we ultimately conclude in the podcast that the comments that are out there by two of them certainly suggest that they are racist. Mm -hmm. Travis McMichael, who actually held the gun, and Roddy Bryan, based on their posts, their their uh, text messages, whatever it is the government had that they testified to. Um, and now there's more apparently <clears throat> that's going to, that the prosecution says it has on the father, Greg McMichael, uh, that would indicate the same. What's the feedback been so far? So far, it's good. People, I think, I will say, first of all, I think that People are going to, I, I'm just predicting people are going to be slower to listen to this one, just because we are so weary of these. <clears throat> this came out just as the Breonna Taylor uh, grand jury report came out. And I just think there is a weariness with this. It's a lot. But I've been impressed by the number of people. 
it's a lot. It's 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 a lot. It's it's exhausting, Hank. It mm-hmm. is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So I think the feedback has been people uh, appreciate that it's finally been dug out that we have connected dots that they had not connected. Okay. I mean, great. Talk all you want, as we have ever since Ferguson and Michael Brown about how police need more training. We've been talking about this for 40, 50, 60 years. Police need better training to, you know, train in in how to exercise restraint and all everything. Okay. Um, well, this is this is an example in the Mod Arbery, the, the man who was the father, Greg McMichael, was a police officer. He he had all the opportunities to do the training. Okay. Mm-hmm. And guess what? He skipped it. Mm-hmm. He skipped training. Mm-hmm. You know, and you'll find out more about that in this podcast. You know, that's how come he was stripped of being a police officer. Mm-hmm. Guess what? On the day he chases Ahmad Arbery. He's doing something, and by then he's no longer in the police force. He's doing something he would not have been allowed to do if he had been a police officer. That's the kind of thing that we're able to bring to it that I think connects dots for people in ways they might not have thought about before. Hank, before we end our conversation, I do want to get your thoughts on another case that has been just since I moved to Georgia, and former state lawmaker Tyrone Brooks has for years just been trying to he keeps it going and that of course is the the killings at the Morris Ford Bridge obviously whomever did it cases like that Emmett Till those cases that without anyone being convicted without anyone without as folks say without justice being served what do we learn from just keeping these stories alive when no one was arrested no one was convicted What's the lesson here? What do we gain from this? Well, the lesson to me is, and the lesson that I do get feedback on from from people, is that while it's too late to achieve justice in the criminal justice system, it is not too late to receive justice, historical justice. You know how we say, say their name of the victims. We Mm -hmm. want to elevate the lives and the humanity of the victims. To be honest with you, I feel the same way about the perpetrators. Say their names. Mm-hmm. Get their names out there. You know, they got away with it. And and there's no reason, if you've got the evidence, as we do in these cases. Now, the Ahmaud Arbery case is not yet adjudicated, so I, I am not going to pass judgment on that in that same sort of way as I did with A.C. Hall or with Isaiah Nixon. But let the history books let the history websites, let the history podcasts reflect who did what to whom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, 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 and let listeners be the ultimate jury in these cases. Because mm-hmm. I think over time, because I think when you sit in that jury box as a listener and you come to understand these things, it might even change your mind about things. And I'm telling you, I'm getting emails. I got one from a fellow up in somewhere in upstate New York on the Ahmaud Arbery case and just said, I had, no, he had, I'm sorry. I got a, an email in the midst of the Ahmaud Arbery stories coming out, the episodes coming out from a fellow who had gone and listened to the Isaiah Nixon case. 
He says, I just never knew this. You're just waking me up. Hmm. I just had no sense of this sort of thing going on. And so to me, I'm not out to convert people, but he's a convert. Historical justice. Hank Klibanoff, veteran journalist, Pulitzer Prize winning author, Peabody Award winning podcast host of WABE's Buried Truths, mentor in so many ways. Hank, as always, good conversation. Rose, great questions. I always love talking with you. Thank you so much. Well, I learned from the best, sir. That's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Shelley Canavy. If you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash closer look. And of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m. And listen whenever you want, because Closer Look is now available as a podcast. Just visit NPR One or your favorite streaming app and subscribe. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.